wisdom as we continue to trust you and look to you and Father to just allow your word to mold and shape us. And so Lord, as we continue in the armor, give us insight and wisdom, Lord. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. And we're only going to look at the last half of verse 11. The message entitled, The Christian Soldier Victorious in Warfare. Paul um, exhorted the believer to be equipped for the battle as a good soldier, characterized by three truths last time from verse 10 to 11, the first part. The believer there is to realize his or her own insufficient weakness for the spiritual warfare, not trusting themselves. Secondly, the believer is to rely on the sufficient strength of Jesus for the spiritual warfare all the time. And thirdly, the believer is to recognize the efficient provision for spiritual warfare. And of course, that is the armor, the whole armor. Paul now gives the purpose for the command to be a strong soldier in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. It is simply this, to be victorious in the warfare. The last part of 11. Let me read here. He says, to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The purpose is comprised and characterized by the following. First, the ability for victory in the warfare. Second, the intensity in the warfare. And thirdly, the adversary in the warfare. The ability for victory in the warfare is right up front. Notice how good the Lord is. He tells you the end at the beginning, how it finishes. This is a possibility, a potential for each one. In other words, when, when I fail, it's because I fail, not because God didn't equip me or he wasn't sufficient for it. And so here, notice the Apostle Paul has already declared the strategy for the spiritual warfare, as I said in verse 10 and the first part of 11. He first commanded the believer to be strong in the Lord, and the power of his might, so the believer is not to trust his own human or natural abilities to fight the spiritual warfare. No amount of intelligence will do, no amount of morality will do, no amount of vitality will do. The believer is also to trust the power of Jesus Almighty, his might, his power, for the spiritual warfare continually. Only the, um, the might of Jesus can endure us with the ability to be victorious, and only the power of of Jesus can give the outcome. So it's the ability to engage and to move through it, but also the outcome. Now remember, this is the middle voice we said last time. It means a union with Christ and indicates it is the person themselves responsible for abiding in the strength for the warfare. The middle voice always means you have to do it. No one can do it for you. It doesn't happen automatically. You can't put it on Mexican overdrive, neutral. You can't do that, okay? You've got to be engaged. 
This is part of it. Notice um, that this is the only true source of strength. Now, the second command the believer was given was to put on the whole armor of God. So the phrase again, put on, was stated to mean to clothe or to array ourselves with. And then you have this this soldier, this Roman soldier that Paul has before him, and he's and everybody's familiar. So you know they're they're seeing all the different armor being put on. The verb again is emphatic, put it on, put it on. And there is no Christian exempt from this order. And the errors indicates decisive act, submissive obedience by each of us. And once again, the middle voice, that means that the person does it for themselves. Now notice the armor provides an effectiveness that can only come through the entirety of the armor. Not mere selectiveness. Too often Christians, uh, they select what they want to study. They select what kind of uh, teaching they want to go to. Some people, some Christians just attend concerts. That's all they do. And some, some Christians only attend prophecy conferences. That's all they do. And other Christians only attend uh, theology conferences, whatever it is, okay? Listen, have you ever seen guys at the gym that they only go work their arms? They got arms about 21, 22 inch arms and everything else is like olive oil. It looks awkward, right? You want to go to the gym, you want to work your arms, your legs, your pecs, everything, right? To be symmetrical, right? In proportion. That's the whole idea. The complete armor. Literally all the weapons. This word right here. Armor. Panoplia. Made up of two words, pass, all, haplon, weapons. It's found two other times, Luke eleven twenty two, and then again in this chapter, verse 13. Now notice the Apostle Paul declared the guaranteed outcome. Paul once again affirms the victory comes with the believer being a co-participant. In their dependency on Jesus. Now, I'm not being repetitive because I want to. I'm repeating it because it's in each text all the time. So if Paul keeps saying, you have to be involved, you have to do it. Every time he mentions it, I'm going to tell you that. Because somehow we think it happens by the process of osmosis. Automatically. It does not. That you may be able... It's in the present tense, simply means to have the capacity by the imparted ability. But you're the co-participant, depending on Jesus. The middle voice again, you do it, abiding strength in the warfare. This is a context in the warfare. The emphasis is on the word stand, underline the word stand. It means to make firm, fixed, established. The word has the idea of upholding and sustaining under the force of opposition. Like a lineman on the football field. He stands firm, resisting that opposition. The words, the word here is found three other times. One in a different form and two in the same form. In verse 13, towards the end there. To withstand 
any systeme. That's the different form to set oneself against. But you stand firm against. And then having done all to stand, to make firm, fix, or establish, also there in verse 13, and then stand, therefore, in verse 14, the first part. The last two are the same form. The first one in verse 13 is a different form, but it's the same Greek word. Okay? Now, he keeps repeating. When Paul or anybody repeats something, there's an emphasis. It's a key word. To stand. It implies opposition. It implies resistance. It implies the involvement, the participation that you are going forward. You're not backing off. You're not going to give up. You know where you're going. You know who you are. You know what God wants done. Christian resistance in the spiritual warfare is much like a tree that is on the edge of a precipice overlooking the ocean. And that wind just beats up against it as it comes on shore and it just keeps beating against it. And because it's beating against it, it has to resist that wind so it has thick and deep roots that grab the ground so it can be firm and not be taken down. Without resistance, you'll never grow your muscles. You've got to overload and break it down before it grows any larger. If you don't overload it, it won't break down. It'll remain the same size. James gives us the basic principles for the spiritual warfare. James 4, 7, listen to it. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Three, submit, resist, draw nigh to God. And he will flee. Wow. Ephesians says, give no place, literally a foothold to the devil in chapter 4, verse 27. When you open that door and he tries to stick that foot in, you slam the door. Jesus has provided us with the necessary weapons. They are spiritual being down the stronghold of the enemy. To bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, as we said last week in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. The armor of God excludes no aspect of my body in front. It covers me all my mighty organs. From chapter 6, verse 10 down to 18. All the front. No armor in the back, we said. Jesus used the same to defeat Satan, the Holy Spirit, prayer, and the Word of God. In Luke 4, 1-13. We'll look a little bit closer to it as we move along. Now, Paul promised God would never allow us to be tempted more than we're able, but with every testing, give us a way of escape. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I love that verse and I hate that verse. I love it because it's a promise I can win and I hate it when I don't win because it's my fault, not God's. Simple. He is our merciful high priest, able to give us grace and help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says. Jude provides wisdom for us, that of keeping the Lord between us and the devil. Jude 8, 9 says, the Lord rebuke you. That's when he told the devil when he tried to 
did Moses' body, remember? The Lord rebuke you. You keep the Lord between you and the devil, you'll be fine. Some of the traditions of the church have little formulas. I bind you, Satan. I I dare you to find me that verse anywhere in the Bible. That combination, bind and loosing, only appears three times, never in the context of the enemy. As if it's a command, but yet it's not found anywhere, Acts, the epistles. The only place you find it is in the teaching of Jesus when he bound the strong man to deliver the demon-possessed person. And that is the context in the demon exorcism of Matthew 12, 29, Mark 3, 27, Luke 11, 21, 22. As if, and of course, there's others that, you know, the blood of Jesus. Again, um, not one example or command in the New Testament for us to use this or the other. The blood of Christ um, is the element that um, cleanses us and gives us our righteousness. John twenty two twenty, first Peter one nineteen, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. Now, the use of both of these phrases I bind you, Satan, and I plead the blood of Jesus, are often um, spoken with authority, usually with a loud voice, as if Satan's supposed to go, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that creeps in the church. Am I denying the power of the blood of Jesus? No, it's for my sins. Am I saying that we can't confront the enemy, Satan? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's not a formula for us to just throw it around and thinking we can that. Listen, I never want to confront Satan. I keep the Lord between me and him. The Lord rebuke you. If you think you're big enough for Satan, you're, you're pretty dumb. Keep the Lord between you and he. The war is spiritual and there is... An ongoing battle in the angelic world that goes on constantly, as we will see in our next study of verse 12. Angels are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation, Hebrews 1.14 says. And angels are used by God to do uh, things as protection and to aid man. Daniel chapter 5, we see that with Daniel. We, he was in the lion's den and many others. Angels are used for judgment. In uh, Genesis 19. So we'll be looking at some of this. So the ability for the victory in the warfare is undeniable. Right? Says it right up front. Before he even gets to the armor. Before he even introduces the enemy. He says that you might be able to stand. Now notice secondly. Comes the intensity in the warfare. The Apostle Paul describes the ensnaring strategies or tactics of the warfare. Paul uh, described our standing against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means cunning, art, deceit, craft, treachery, if you will. 
It comes from the word to follow up, investigate by method of settled plans. Carefully, scrutinizing, not just casually looking. When you're at war, you're very critical. You're looking. You watch the enemy to look at the weak areas. Where can I get him? The word against, pros, appears six times for the believer. Constant resistance and opposition between verse 11 and 12. Six times against, 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 against. Notice Paul declares Satan's methods or stratagems seek out our most vulnerable areas then. Fear, doubt, discouragement, anger, unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, self-righteousness, pride. Keep the list going. We're not to be ignorant to the devices of Satan that he might take advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, He can come as an angel of light and it's to destroy us, to disqualify us, to neutralize us. But he doesn't come as a hideous creature. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, he's a beautiful creature. We'll look at the account of Isaiah and Ezekiel. Satan and his angels can transform themselves into angels of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15 says. Two worlds exist side by side. The spiritual world is very conscious of us. While we are in the physical are so often so ignorant of the spiritual world. Unable because we can't see angels normally. In this room there's good angels and bad angels. There's a warfare going on here. We can't see it. If God would open our eyes, we'd blow our minds. Remember Gehazi, Elisha's servant? <laughs> Lord, open this fool's eyes. Hmm. Notice the Apostle Paul was aware of the three conversations of Satan with man that's recorded in the Scripture. He had the Scriptures. He had to be aware of it. Revealing other strategies and tactics. The first conversation, there's only three. The first one's found in Genesis where Satan slanders God to man. That's his focus. Listen to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. He slanders God to man by questioning God's word to stir up doubt. In Genesis 3, 1. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God really said that you're going to have eternal life? Has God really said that you're a new creature? Has God really said that he's coming? Question in his word. He slanders God to man by saying God lies in order to bring about mistrust. You will not surely die, he says in Genesis 3, 4. God lied to you. See, when someone lies to you, it's devastation. It demoralizes you. It humiliates you. And the closer the person is, the more humility it is. And the more demoralizing it is. 
He slanders God to man by stating God is trying to keep us from what is good and beneficial to cause us to rebel and disobey. He says, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3, 5. So God is really trying to hold you down. He's trying to limit you. He doesn't want you to know as much as he does because then he feels threatened. (laughs) The second conversation is in the book of Job where Satan slanders man now to God. He slanders Job before God, saying he was faithful only because God had protected him. Job chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. He says, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has and everything, every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Job maintained his integrity. In that same chapter, verse 21 and 22, it says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God wrong with wrong. Now you know that his kids died, everything, everything, everything was taken from him. Then he slandered Job before God a second time, saying that if Job's health was removed, then he would curse God. Job 2, 4 through 6. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, He is in your hand, but spare his life. We'll touch on it later, but notice God puts the limitations. Notice he needs permission from God. People often ask, what's the purpose of the book of Job? Ready? God is sufficient for whatever he allows in your life. End of conversation. (laughs) That's it. Job maintained his integrity again. There in second chapter, still 7 through 10, he says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a posture with which he scraped himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, I'd like to be married to her. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God? And we and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Can't wait to meet Job. The third conversation is found in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. These are the only three conversations we have of Satan with with the individuals. This is it. 
Satan here in Luke 4, 1 through 13, Satan tempted Jesus to satisfy his physical hunger, as you know, of his body for strength rather than drawing strength from the word. There in Luke chapter 4, verse 3 through 4, he says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Defeated him. Satan tempted Jesus to worship him by appealing to his intellect, emotions, and his will, rather than obedience to the word of God. In verse 5 through 8 of Luke 4. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you in their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only uh, shall you serve. Defeated him again. The word of God. It is written. Satan tempted Jesus third time. To tempt God. In what he clearly knew was wrong. And presumptuous. Appealing out to his spirit. Body, soul, spirit. Verse 9 through 12. Then. He brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, and the word if means since you're the Son of God, it's affirming it, since you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hand they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Defeated Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was praying. And he used God's word. Those three are our access, part of the armor. You remember David. David um, was ignoring the stratagems of Satan. He was willfully disobedient to all the checks given to him. As he moves step by step to finally committing adultery and then murder. He didn't use his armor. He ignored the wiles of the devil because it appealed to his body, to his soul. And he just ignored his spirit. The temptations of every sinner and saints are in three basic Areas, First John two sixteen says, the first being the lust of the flesh. This is from within, by our sinful nature, that attempts to pervert and distort the physical drives dealing with the body. There's nothing wrong with our body in and of itself. God created it for us. The sin is, um, is the fact of yielding to our sin nature. And using our bodies in some immoral way or against the way God intended it to. There is what is wrong. There's nothing wrong with eating. But you can make a pig of yourself and hurt yourself in health, right? That's a sin. Gluttony is a sin. No different than any other sin. 
The second is the lust of the eye. It is from without. First one's from within. This one's from without. It stirs up our emotions and desires to obtain what we see dealing with the soul, the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Once again, 1 John 2.16. Weakening us to surrender and partake. The woman is more um, affected here and susceptible and often the greatest casualty in sexual relationships prior to marriage because men manipulate women. And women are not protected in our society by their parents often. They're given free reign. And so consequently, the home is undermined from the very youth of women in many different ways. That doesn't mean the man has freedom in that. He doesn't. It hurts him also. And it hurts the home also. But women are more emotional and they're manipulated much easier. Am I saying men can't be manipulated? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we are two different creatures. Men initiate, women respond. Men say, come on. The woman says yes or no. Am I clear? Okay. It's just the way it works. You can't live in a fantasy land. That's reality. Now, the third is the pride of life. It's from within. That arrogance of self-sufficiency, self-will, and self-centered, dealing with the spirit. Now, since the non-believer spirit is dead, that's all he has. He's just, he runs by his body and his, his emotions, right? His intellect. He has no, no governor, no, no filter. Prideless Lucifer to rebel and corrupt one-third of the angels in heaven. Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12 tells us. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs 16 and 18 tells us. Adam and Eve were tempted in the very same way. The woman saw the tree, that it was good for the food appealing to the body, senses. Genesis 3, 6. The fruit was pleasant to the eye, the appeal to the soul, appealing to the soul, the intellect, the emotion, and the wills in Genesis 3, 6 again. And the tree desirable to make one wise, appealing to the spirit to be as God. Genesis 3, 6 again. Those are the three areas. It's consistent through scripture from Genesis, the garden, all the way to the end. Now Jesus being tempted in these three areas also was victorious. And here's the key to the believer's life. For he did it as a representative of man, the last Adam, depending on the Father, giving us an example that we could defeat Jesus, the Satan also. Okay? He didn't do it as God. He did it as man. Man should not live by bread alone. He used the power of the Spirit, Word of God, and prayer. Jesus, 100% man, dependent on the Father to accomplish everything while on earth. He never did it as God himself. Otherwise, he could not reasonably expect us to do the same because we're not God. He's the last Adam. So either you're in the first Adam, sold out to sin, blind, dead, and trapped in sin, or you're in the last Adam, alive, depending on the Father and the Spirit and the Word and prayer. One of the two. Jesus was tempted in body when Satan told him to turn 
stones to bread. The body need. Jesus was tempted in soul when Satan offered him the kingdoms, the power, the glory, the intellect, the emotion, the will. Jesus was tempted in spirit when Satan solicited him to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple to tempt the Lord. Pride, the spirit. There's the three windows again. You see, Jesus can sympathize with us as he was tempted in every area and every level of temptation that you and I ever go through. But here's the key. Yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15 tells us. Now, think of what I'm going to say. If Jesus was victorious, which he was, there had to have been a potential for failure. If there was no potential for failure, there was no real testing. Okay? You don't get 100% because there's no potential for failure. Alright? So in what he did, you and I can do in the warfare. He's our example. Not only did Jesus resist in these three areas, Luke tells us that he was being tempted for 40 days and then the three major temptations came, Luke 4, 2. Adam and Eve had only one temptation in Genesis 3. Mark says Jesus was with the wild beast or animals in Luke, in Mark 1, 13. Adam and Eve were in the garden with tame animals. <laughs> Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus fasted 40 days and nights. Adam and Eve did not. And then Luke 4.13 says, And Satan departed for a season till a better opportunity. I'm convinced Satan is a JW. He keeps knocking on the door, coming back. He will look for the best time. He will look when you're weak. He will look when you're down. He will look when you're bummed out. He will look when you are acting stupid. You know, I'm pretty smart when I don't act stupid. And he'll be right there. The intensity in the warfare is undisputable. You got to be on your guard. Thirdly, the adversary in the warfare. One word, the devil. <laughs> in Spanish, he's called el diablo. That's the word in the Greek. The devil in his origin is found in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15. Again, diablo or devil means false accuser or slander. Satan, who was created by God as all other creatures. It says, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created, Ezekiel twenty-eight fifteen. It reveals Satan was not created evil. He wasn't created evil, but good. The word perfect refers to his person, meaning complete, whole, and sound. 
The word ways refers to his loyalty, direction, course, and moral character in the service of God. Excellent. Everything God created was declared to be good in Genesis 1.31. It reveals the devil is a created being then. He had a day when he came into existence. He is therefore not all-powerful or in any way an equivalence to God. You want to get an equivalence to, to Satan or the devil? Maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel, not God. The devil is different and distinct person from demons. As we will see in our next study, we'll pick up all his fallen angels that are given to us in ranks in verse 12. Ezekiel 28, 12 says the devil was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were, um, the devil was one of a kind, if you will. And above kind, none like him, the highest angel. The angel, if you will. The devil was endowed with superb understanding to assimilate information and gain insight for the best conclusion. The devil was the most beautiful creature. The same word for perfect is used as in verse 15 there of Ezekiel to describe as first and complete whole and sound. We usually think of the devil as someone real ugly. We even get tattoos with his red PJs on and his pitchfork. You must laugh. The devil was in Eden, Ezekiel tells us, the garden of God, covered with every precious stone, perhaps as the leader of the worship of God. Listen to Ezekiel twenty eight thirteen. You were in Eden, <clears throat> the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, uh, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. Now, the Eden mention in our text there of Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen has to do and has to be completely distinct and different from the one in Genesis 3. For here, this Eden of God, he is perfect. You ever catch that? This is the Eden of God in heaven. It's not Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Satan has fallen, a deceiver, attacking the children of God, opposing God. The description of Satan in his position in the garden of God here is serving God. The gems that was his attire with the gold cannot refer to Genesis 3. The office described as Satan is the worship leader in heaven for God. In fact, the word workmanship means occupation, business, or service. Designated the day he was created. Context, context, context. 
Now notice the devil was the anointed cherub who covered. Ezekiel 28.14 says, You were the anointed cherub that covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. The devil was the anointed cherub. Cherub are one of the angels' uh, order, the angelic order found in the scriptures. Cherubim is plural. Cherub is singular. For in by him were created all things, Colossians 1.16 says. God created all of them. Seraphim and archangels and then angels. Those are the orders that we have in scripture. The one who covers, it says, meaning to hedge, to fence about or shut in, and could refer to the protective uh, care of God's throne. Since cherubim are always associated with the mercy seat of God and the throne of God. If you look at the ark, the mercy seat, you look at the temple, you look at Isaiah 6, you look at Revelation 4 and 5 and many other places. Once again, God established him and gave him that position. So Satan was once in heaven. People always say, well, you know, he, he used to go to church. Yeah, Satan used to be in heaven too. What does that mean? He was on the holy mountain of God. He walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. So we have the devil and his fall. We see his origin, but then his fall. Satan's sin was from within, being a free moral agent. Ezekiel 28, 15 through 18 tells us that. Listen. Till iniquity was found in you. Ezekiel 28, 15. He was created perfect, but he had a free will, and he corrupted himself from within. God doesn't make robots. Not even in angelic form. Now you're creating the image and likeness of God. Angels are not. They're just ministering spirits. Therefore, redemption is for you and me, not angels. You became filled with violence within and you sin. Ezekiel 28, 16. Within and you sin. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted yourself, your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Ezekiel 28, 17. Wow. He's got it bad, doesn't he? You defile your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. He falsely accused and slandered God to all the other angels. Ezekiel 28, 18. Second to God. Top angel. Wasn't enough. Scriptures tell us Jesus saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven in Ezekiel 10, 18. So Satan's rebellion was against God. We have Lucifer's five I wills in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Listen to him. Lucifer means morning star, literally light bearer. Pride was the cause of his fall. We've seen the one who weakens the nations Isaiah 14 tells us. Ezekiel gives us God's six I wills in the response to his 
uh, to Satan's threat in desiring to be God. Listen to Ezekiel and Isaiah both. Ezekiel 14, 28. I always sing 14, double 28. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. That's how I remember it. Satan's first, I will ascend into heaven. Isaiah 14, 13. God's response in Ezekiel, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Satan's second, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars are angels. Isaiah 14, 13. God's second response, I destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Ezekiel 28, 16. Satan's third, I will, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. Isaiah 14, 13. God's third, I cast you to the ground. Ezekiel 28, 17. Satan's fourth, I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. Isaiah 14, 14. God's fourth, I laid you before kings and they might gaze at you. Ezekiel 28, 17. Satan's fifth, I will be like the most high. Isaiah 14. God's fifth, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. Ezekiel 28, 18. God's sixth. Listen. I turn you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Ezekiel 28, 18. And then Isaiah 14, 15 says, Yet you shall be brought down to the depths of the pit. Wow. Satan's rebellion led other angels astray, as we've said. He led a third of the angels who left their first estate or dominion, Revelation 12, 4, and Jude, verse 6. Revelation says he drew a third part with his tail. Think of a dragon. More than a serpent. <laughs> there are angels of darkness, bound, permanently bound in Tartarus, in chains, Second Peter 2, 4, Jude 6. They are bound, they're so vile, God will not let them loose. There are temporary bound angels in the bottomless pit, and they'll be loosed during the Great Tribulation, Revelation 19, 2 and 14. Then there are angels of darkness that are loose. Demons possess people. Unbelievers, they are loose. Evil spirits seem to influence people. They are loose. By the way, demons are nothing but fallen angels. They just need to possess a body. Why, I don't know. In scripture, they cause at times dumbness, deafness, sickness. It is wrong for believers to always think that anybody who's deaf, dumb, or mute is demon-possessed. That is absolutely wrong. It, ha- it can cause it at times when the scriptures tell us, and it does happen outside of the United States. The interesting thing is because we've become so pagan, there is more um, demonic activity in the United States than ever before. So maybe we'll start seeing more of that because we become more pagan. His kingdom is described as the kingdom of wicked spirits in verse 12 here of Ephesians. Wicked spirits. John tells us that many spirits have gone out into the world, the cosmos, the worldly system in 1 John 4.1. Martin Luther said, the devil is the ape of God. <laughs> He's his monkey on a string. 
God limits him. The devil at present has a dismal future. The devil, Satan, is not the opposite or counterpart of God, as I said. He is an angel created by God. He's not omniscient, all-knowing. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not omnipresent, present everywhere at the same time. He's a creative being. He's limited by God and what he can do. He needed permission to test Job, as we've seen in Job 1 and 2. He was rebuked by God in Zechariah 3, 1. The Lord rebuke you. He was not allowed to take Moses' body. Michael rebuked him in Jude 9. And he goes about to destroy. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. First Peter 5, 8, 9. Now, you think it would be a good place to say, now rebuke him, bind him. He didn't put that. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Gates are authority. Gates don't fight. It speaks the authority of God is greater than the authority of Satan. Simple. The devil, Satan, is called the God of this world who blinds men's minds from the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan's activities are constant. The opposition against the gospel by Satan is taught by Jesus. In Matthew 13, 19, the kingdom parables, the parable of the sower, it says there, Jesus says, for Satan is one who snatches up the seed, the word of God, from men's heart, lest they believe. He says it very clearly. Jesus called Satan the prince of the ruler of this world on three occasions. John twelve thirty one. Jesus, knowing his hour had come, said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus said to his disciples in John fourteen thirty, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. The third time in John 16, 11, Jesus said, And when he has come, speaking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one, the Poneros, First John five nineteen. By virtue of our fallenness, or sin nature through Adam. Romans 5.12. Sin entered in and through sin death. It passed through all men by Adam. Dead of trespasses and sins. We saw that in Ephesians 2. 1 and 2. The devil, Satan, has many names and titles. Satan 56 times in the Bible. Meaning the adversary, the opposer. Old and New Testament. Devil 38 times. Plus 28 21 more times in Revelation to him in the New Testament, meaning slander, accuser, one who trips up. Um, its purpose is to defame man and God in Christ. Old serpent, one time in the New Testament, but serpent four times 
and represents experience and subtlety, craftiness, and deceit. Prior to the fall, I don't know if you realize that, the serpent walked upright. The curse was that he would crawl, Genesis 3.1, like a dragon. Curse was that. By the way, in the millennial kingdom, that's the only animal that does not get reversed. It still eats dust. The only one, the serpent. Great dragon, once in Revelation. Two other times, just dragon. It literally means sea monster, referring to his power and destruction. Appearing 13 times, all in the book of Revelation. The evil one, four times in First John, describing the source of his nature. He is not content unless he seeks others and to make them evil. Appearing four times, all in First John. Destroyer, once in the New Testament, and identifies with the angel of the bottomless pit, Abaddon Apollyon, which uh, means destruction or destroyer, Revelation 9.10, 9.11. Roaring lion, once in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.8. I just read a little bit ago. Tempter, twice to entice mankind to do evil and sin. Accuser, two times in the New Testament, as the one who charges man before God. No one can accuse the believer, Romans 8.33. Who condemns? No one. Jesus has justified Deceiver, one time for Satan and another for Antichrist, identifying the one who counterfeits, disguises, and schemes. Second John 1, 7 and Revelation 12, 9. And there are many, many other that we can give, Beelzebub, Belial, etc. Now the devil, Satan, and his activities within the church are kind of amazing. The church of Smyrna was persecuted by Jews who were of the synagogue of Satan, 100 to 312 A.D., Revelation 2, 8, 9. Satan made his way into the church of Pergamos. He had established his throne in it, 312 to 600 B.C., uh, Revelation 2, 12 to 13. Satan managed to con um, contaminate the entire church of Thyatira and made it his home, 600 to 1500. That's the dark ages of the Catholic Church. Revelation 2, 18 through 20. The parables of the tares and the children of the wicked one, the enemies being Satan, the wheat being the children of God. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Now Jesus interprets the parable and says, only the seed that fell by the wayside and was snatched up by Satan did not receive the gospel. Only one did not receive the gospel. The ground is the heart of man. Three of the four received the word, but two of them, two of the three, did not abide in Jesus, but fell away. Three were born. One was never born. So, so there goes Calvinism. <laughs> okay? If you're a woman, you're pregnant, and you have a miscarriage two days after, what's your miscarriage? A baby. If you miscarriage at eight months, what do you miscarriage? A baby. If you give birth to that child and it dies one month after, what is it? A baby. 
All three women were pregnant. All three received it. Two fell away. One continued. It's real simple. Don't read into the text. Let it read, let it say exactly what it says and listen to the words of Jesus. He interprets this for us. John says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. The wicked one is limited. 1 John 5, 18. Satan has attempted to destroy God's seed from the beginning. Cain and Abel in Genesis. Egypt, the massacre of the infants. David through Psalm. Satan tempted David to number the children of Israel. Athaliah destroyed the seed royal. Esther, Haman plotted to destroy the Jews. Esther came through. Herod slaughtered. The infants, uh, pre-attempts on, on the taking Jesus' life throughout the Gospels, we see. There's temptation of Jesus, which also was in danger there. And the final conflict will be when Satan poses, uh, possesses the Antichrist and um, he tries to destroy Jesus as he returns to the earth. Wow. The final conflict will be when Satan um, is there thinking. And th- that said, I'm winning, but... You know, what's interesting is that he's a loser. He can't win. Satan is used by God at times as his instrument. The simple principle taught in Scripture that Satan is under God's control and his authority is limited. As the Lord said the same, Behold, all that is in your power, only do not lay your hands on him. Limited. Jesus is seated above all principalities and powers and might and dominions, Ephesians 2.21. Joseph declared they meant it for evil, but you meant meant it for good. Evil spirits was addressed to Saul by the hand of God. If you remember, Jesus gives permission to Judas to betray him. Satan enters him. Satan was used to move the Pharisees to plot his death against him. Jesus said to Peter, Satan wanted you to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. Satan is used to discipline and chasten believers. Turn them over to Satan twice. It's stated. Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus stripped him of authority. Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says. Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says. The grave could not hold him. Acts 2, 24 says. Jesus says Satan was judged. In John 12, 31, 14, 30 and 16, 11. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, making a public display of them, triumphing over them. Colossians 2, 15 says. And Jesus led captivity captive and gave gifts to men to perfect the saints. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. And Jesus reveals the destiny of the devil. Are you ready for it? Satan will be cast out of heaven at the start of the great tribulation. The defeat of Satan's army of the world uh, will fall at Armageddon. Satan will be bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit through the millennium. Satan will be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. And the end of Satan and the final defeat, listen, was prophesied from the beginning when he said in Genesis 3.15 that the Son of God would strike him in an injurious and a deadly blow to the head. Only a temporary wound to Jesus, the heal. Wow. The adversary in the warfare is unredeemable. He's lost. And so, Paul has declared the purpose 
of the command to be strong in the Lord, to put on the whole armor of God. Simply to be victorious in the warfare. Characterized by the ability for victory in the warfare, which is undeniable. The intensity of the warfare is indisputable and the adversary in the warfare is unredeemable. You can't convince him. You can't turn him. You can't save him. <laughs> but he won't quit until Jesus puts him away. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to deal with us. And Lord, as we grow in the knowledge of your word, that Lord, we might just put this whole armor on. Lord, I pray for everyone here and Lord, for those over the internet and radio and that you would just use it for your glory. You would speak to their hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would, Father, shed your light on them that they might see their need of your grace to be saved and forgiven. As you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to be saved. To turn from your sins. And if you see yourself in need of salvation, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now you, the middle voice, you have to make that decision. He won't make it for you. You have to say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I want to be saved. If this is your desire, then this is your prayer of repentance. Right where you sit or wherever you are on the internet. You can do it right where you're at right now. And God is going to forgive you and redeem you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. And my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.